So this is our second look at Meals with Jesus. Uh, I know there'd be some people here, I think I've talked to one person from this church, but certainly chatting with other people that this is their favourite story in the Gospels, this story of Jesus at dinner with Simon and the um, woman with the perfume. So um, if it's your favourite, I I don't want to damage it for you. Let's pray. Um, Let's pray for help. Merciful Lord, please grant your faithful people pardon and peace so that by your grace we may be cleansed from all our sins, serve you with a quiet mind. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see your son more clearly, and perhaps in order to do that, we would also catch a glimpse of ourselves. So, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would be our teacher. Amen. Now, I'm not going to promise there'll be no references to music next week, but I'm going to try hard not to. But I thought we'd start with a reference to some more classical music. Where is he? He's not there. There he is. Alice Cooper, son of a clergyman. He's 76 now. He was famous um, for all sorts of antics. He was, he was a performer. Uh, no one was ever quite clear if he actually bit the head off the budgerigars that he did in his act, but you know, it, it certainly looked as if he did. And he was a great performer, and in, recently he's become genuinely, deeply enthusiastically Christian. And he says this, I tell you one thing, when Jesus opens your eyes and you finally realise who you are and who he is, it's a whole different world. And I thought the, the wisdom from the great Alice Cooper was that when God is opening your eyes, he will normally open your eyes to who you are and to who Jesus is. In fact, I think one of the reasons we often don't see who Jesus is clearly is because we are resistant to seeing who we are. And when God is being merciful to us, he often reveals to us who we are, which is not always a pleasant experience. So we have this famous dinner. Uh, Did you notice the wisdom that the woman had in her words? Was there any words that she said that particularly stood out? Nah, that's a trick question, sorry. She doesn't say anything in the whole story. Nothing is recounted of what she says. She's spoken about, she's despised, she's used as a fine example. She actually says nothing. But she says plenty. Because great love is heard in its deeds. Great love is heard in its deeds. Let's look at that as the first area of thought. Her great love is heard very clearly in her deeds. Actions speak louder than words, which is true often, although you can't really say actions speak louder than words without words. There are some things where words are really helpful. But very often, deeds will show what's in the heart, and sometimes they will tell us what's in the heart more than the words that we mouth. And this woman's deeds are what's extraordinary. A book has come out recently, I haven't read it, written by an Australian bloke, I think, and it said this, and I thought the title, and I commented on it in a different venue, the title is this, You Are What You Do. Now that's a highly controversial thing to say, because there's been a whole lot of stuff asking us to slow down, stop being such activists, 
You're a human being, not a human doing, and these sorts of things, you know. And I think that's, that's a fair concern. But I think there's a great truth, I haven't read the book, that you are what you do. Uh, what you do really tells us what matters to us rather than just what we think we do, uh, what we're talking about doing. And this woman does some pretty weird stuff, frankly, publicly. In fact, I'm certain that when she went to this dinner, she had no intention of doing at least two of the three things that she did. I think if she knew she was going to respond as she did, she probably would have found some other place to do what she was hoping to do. Well, as you heard in verse 36, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and he went to the Pharisee, he accepted the invitation, and reclined at the table. So this is, many of you would have a picture of this, that they didn't sit with chairs, with the feet under the table. You sat on these, if it was a, if it was a fancy meal, you'd have, be at a table and you'd have sort of a, a lounge and you'd sit with your feet often behind you, resting on one arm and using just one hand to eat. That's the significance in some cultures of cutting off the hand. It really cuts you out of social uh, business because this hand is for eating and this hand is for other things. And um, the other thing that, because I was puzzling, how does the woman get into this banquet? Like, if you wanted to get into our place during a meal, you've got to knock the front door down, or, um, wander through a few pathways. But the, the archaeologists and the historians are very clear that if, if you were a fairly wealthy person, as this guy would have been, most of the Pharisees were successful business people, quite wealthy group, um, you, your house would, be, would have an open courtyard which people could come into and the dining room would come directly off that. And people were kind of welcome if you were having a, a fancy dinner to sort of hang around you know, at, the, at the doorway or even slide around and sort of be, it's like a spectator sport. And, and that was kind of normal. So particularly if someone as prominent as a Pharisee is inviting someone as explosive as Jesus, it would have been the sort of thing that word would have got around. As we heard with, uh, as we looked last week at Levi, you only ate with people who you had some respect for. It's, it speaks probably well of Simon the Pharisee that he was willing to have Jesus in his home. It may indicate he was a slightly more open-minded than some of the others. A bit like Nicodemus when he meets Jesus, although he comes at night because he doesn't want to be seen by his peers. But he uh, invites Jesus and Jesus says yes and then a gate crasher comes. Really one of the servants should have stopped her coming. I think Simon would have had words with his senior servants after this. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Not with a towel, but just with the perfume. Now this is where it gets interesting. So you've got the, the dinner, Simon, the religious conservative, respectable, Jesus, interesting, causing a little bit of trouble. People watching, this woman has got in. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, so you got, so that's, you've just got a picture again, he's lying there, and she stands behind him. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now the language is quite clear that she is not just shedding a tear, she's kind of raining on the whole thing. And she's really crying. You've had those times when you're just crying, there's just water everywhere, your face looks silly, your makeup runs, well mine does anyhow. And um, you know, she's, she's 
she's a bit of a mess, and, and she's washing his feet in the end. That's where she's standing, and her tears are falling on his feet. Then she, trying to sort of clear up the mess perhaps, she wiped them with her hair. It's not the obvious thing to do, is it? Ever thought, of, oh, there's a mess there, just let me get my hair out, you know? Uh, and also in that culture, in Jewish culture, um, taking your hair out in public for a woman in that culture was actually decent grounds for divorce. Hair was seen to be a thing that was between the husband and the wife. And very often, in some, in some Jewish cultures still, once you're married, no one sees your hair except your husband. So taking her hand, using her hair to wash his feet, that's, that's actually sort of got strangely sexual overtones in that culture. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and the word is quite a vigorous kiss. It's not just a, a peck and a passing, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's that sort of, it's a vigorous kiss, and poured perfume on them. That is the all the interest here is at Jesus' feet. That's a fairly exuberant response. I do think, I don't think there's much doubt. She had no intention of doing that. She had gone with clear intentions with her alabaster uh, container of perfume. That's how expensive perfume was carried. Uh, many, for many women, it was the most expensive thing they had. Sometimes it was almost like their dowry. For women of the street, as it were, for prostitutes, and she, this woman probably was someone who survived in that way with a constant just the use of the word sinner, just summing her up in that way, or at least an adulteress. And um, she's got this perfume with her. And, um, you know, a dab on the head would be lovely. Very, very expensive. She pours it. She pours it on his feet. Now, you may know that in the other three Gospels, there are accounts of uh, women anointing Jesus with perfume and, and stuff like that. But it's not, it's not the same story. It's at the other end of Jesus' life. It's a couple of years later. But, uh, and, and I think um, Mary puts it on Jesus' head. This is on Jesus' feet. And the feet, of course, in that day, as we've mentioned before, were, were grotty. Um, you walked in sandals. You walked on dust roads. You walked on roads that you shared with camels and donkeys. And they all shared their breakfast with the road. And it was messy. And she's washing Jesus' feet and anointing them with perfume. This is extraordinary. Uh, silence is happening as she's doing it. Except in Simon's head, he's thinking, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. This is final proof that the question of Jesus' identity, was he a prophet? The answer was no, as far as he was concerned. That, that, they, that that's just not the, the... A prophet would not let that sort of person touch him. Uh, but Jesus is sitting there taking it all in his stride. Jesus then answers Simon. This is one of the things Jesus does a few times, is he answers the question that you haven't said, but it's, it's dominating your thoughts. And he asks him a question. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. When Jesus says that, it's best to say, mm, maybe not. Because normally when Jesus singles you out to teach you something, it's because there's something where you're seriously mistaken about God. Um, Simon says, tell me, teacher. So the first thing we see in those verses is this woman is displaying great love by her actions. 
She says nothing. I think she's actually overwhelmed. Um, well, let's have a look now uh, to see where great love comes from. Where does this great love for Jesus, this exuberant, perhaps over-the-top love for Jesus, or some would think, come from? Well, Jesus then tells a parable. I must say the rest of the story is kind of so interesting, it's hard to, take the, hard to get as excited about the parable. But the, the central meaning that Jesus wants us to learn from this is in the story of this parable. Jesus says, verse 41, two people owed money to a certain money lender. Uh, one owed him 500 denarii, which is basically two years pay, workers, and the other 50 denarii, which is basically two months pay. So you know, maybe 150,000 bucks for the two years pay and whatever you get for two months. Significant difference, but they're both in debt to the same guy. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he, well, what would normally happen, almost always happen, would be all their assets would be liquidated, and if that still didn't pay for it, and it probably wouldn't, particularly with the guy who had two years' wages, um, they would go into some form of slavery until it was worked out that they'd worked enough years to pay it off. But they would finish up, they'd come out of the sort of slavery. The British used to have a debtor's prison, um, but they're in a terrible situation. And then the unthinkable happens. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Right? Now, that would have been a shock, wouldn't it? People don't loan money because they've got a soft heart. They loan money because they love money and they're making money out of it. But in this peculiar story, and it is a make-believe story um, to make the point, the moneylender says, that's OK. And the word is that he, he is sort of gracious towards them and forgives both of them. And then Jesus' question, which of these will love the moneylender more? Simon replied, I suppose, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says, you're right. I think he says, I suppose, because he's not quite sure. He's, you know, he doesn't want to be tricked, doesn't want to look silly. So, And Jesus says, you're right. The one who's been forgiven two years, just poof, as against two months, that's kind of much more doable. He would be much more grateful and loving. Great love, you see, Jesus is going to tell us, grows out of great forgiveness. A great sense of a huge debt that you've been let off. Then Jesus does this wonderful contrast when he takes this wonderfully eminent, impressive man and asks him to learn from this unnamed, seemingly less impressive woman. Then Jesus turned towards the woman. So he, he, he sort of turns about um, quite clearly and looks at her. He turns towards her but said to Simon. So Simon's listening on. Do you see this woman, Jesus said. And I think he's saying, look at her. Right? Notice her. Right? Learn from her. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. If she'd meant to wash his feet with her tears, she would have brought a towel. But there's a contrast immediately. You didn't give me one now. You didn't have to. You could, you could invite people to your place and not give them water. But it was normal. It was what you did for your friends. Because they arrived there with smelly dry feet and you gave them a chance to wash them, which is, you know, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. All that, it's a part of that culture. Um, he says, you didn't give me any water. She's given me water from her own body. 
you didn't give me a kiss. Again, a standard thing in, in those days when you greeted someone who you appreciated. This woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Right? It's quite a, quite a contrast. He didn't give him a kiss on the cheek. This woman has been kissing his feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. It was not uncommon that if you came for dinner, you'd be offered olive oil, which is fairly cheap in those days. It was, you know, still grows in the Middle East all over the place. You'd be offered some olive oil just to sort of moisture. You know, they didn't have Clinique dramatically different moisturising lotion, so they'd, they'd use olive oil. He said, you know, you didn't, give, you didn't even give me some of that just to, you know, make my skin feel better. She has poured perfume on my flipping feet. Right? And the, ex the cost difference is enormous between what she's done with the perfume and what he could have done with the oil. There's a savage contrast here. Right? Simon may have found, and others may have found, she may have found her behaviour embarrassing. And she got carried away having a chance to meet Jesus. But Jesus holds her up as the contrast, the positive one. Be like her rather than like Simon. Then Jesus says in verse 47, the point of the story, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So you've got to kind of work out, are you more like the 500 denarii debtor or more like the 50? Right? Has God only just forgiven a little bit for you because you're, in fact, he's kind of lucky to have you on his team? Or, are, or do you see yourself as a 500 denarii person, massively in debt? She obviously saw herself as greatly in debt. Everybody else did agree with her on that. Simon obviously saw himself, yes, in need of, the Bible's clear in the Old and the New Testament, that all of us have sinned. You saw that in Psalm 130, right? If you should judge, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. Simon thought he needed a tiny bit. She understood that she needed mountains of it. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. It's not that she was forgiven as she wept at Jesus' feet and as she put them. She hasn't earned it. That would be a foolish perversion of the entire message of the Bible. No, no, that, that's evidence of the fact that she has been greatly forgiven. Right? So it's not, oh, you realise you've sinned. I want forgiveness. Okay, what you need to do is you know, this, this. No, no, no. It's not what it's saying at all. But the evidence of the great forgiveness that she is enjoying, and she's forgiven before she gets to the dinner party. She's not asking him for forgiveness. That these great acts of love are, are responses to her. They're fruit of the fact that she's forgiven. How did that happen? Did she have a conversation with Jesus? She might have. The Bible's very clear. Not everything is, is written down. As John says, the world couldn't hold the number of books if you read everything Jesus did. Was she there at Levi's banquet and heard that Jesus comes as the doctor for the sick and she thought, right, I'm sick. I need forgiveness. Or did she hear the sermon on the plain from, from Luke 6 where Jesus speaks about that God loves those who don't deserve it. He's kind and merciful to the ungrateful and sinful as he calls you and I to be. We don't know. We do know though that she had experienced the forgiveness of God and she saw that it came to her through Jesus. Hence, she is just overflowing with disbelief and joy to the fact of, as I say, pouring out the perfume, which is probably the most expensive thing that she owned. 
and being entirely inappropriate, losing it. Great love, you see, according to Jesus, in verse 47, according to Jesus, if your love for Jesus, if you're aware it's fairly cool and you're pretty together and you're not all that passionate like some, you're not going to dance around the church or lift your arms or anything like that, sing loudly enough to hurt your throat or something like that, it is not because you're the wise together Christian. Now, I'm well aware the temperament comes to play here. You just need to compare the level of your enthusiasm for Jesus and the level of your celebration for the forgiveness he's given you with other levels of joy. I may have shared this with you once before, but this, this is, I remember, there's a church that I have enormous regard for. It's a Baptist church on one of the beaches in Sydney. Nearly on its own, it paid for Alison to go as a missionary to Mongolia. It's a great church. We were there one time, um, and there were some missionaries come back from Fiji, and they were reporting. And I'm, I'm, it still it rattles me, this story. Um, and people were reporting. And they were reporting about this young man in Fiji who came from a Muslim family. He, he came to the Christian school. People like going to Christian schools because we're good at schools and hospitals. And um, so he came, just a secular sort of family. Well, while he was at school, he became a Christian, put his faith in Jesus, got forgiven, went from the broad road to destruction to the narrow road to life. And there was a general sort of a, a wave of good feeling went over the building. A few minutes later, they finished the story of that young man. He went from school to university. He did law. He became a lawyer. At which point, the congregation applauded. Now, you could say, well, Ian, they were perhaps applauding. It just feels another. That was what we were excited about. He became a lawyer. Very noble profession. But I remember thinking, this is awful. We went, oh, that's nice. He became a Christian. I became a lawyer. Right? Um, and I, as I say, I don't think at all it was, you know, because I've applauded the whole story. It was a spontaneous thing. And brother, what that showed me, we just don't get it, do we? The point to sing and dance and stop everything and pray and hallelujah was when this guy, the story was told that he'd been saved. He'd been forgiven. Dang what profession he does. But we do get excited about the secondary and we're kind of a little embarrassed to be too enthusiastic about the things that ought to make us sing and dance and cry even. I think this, I don't know exactly why this woman's crying. I, some people suggest it's because she watched the way Jesus was treated so shabbily, you know, as if he was lucky to be at dinner with Simon and that hurt her. Or whether it was just that accumulation of up by the massive transformation that had come into her life through the great forgiveness of her great sin. But that is the thing that Jesus commends her for for her great love, as against Simon, who was so controlled. She was a head and heart gal. And probably, apart from Jesus himself, we could argue this over a cup of coffee, I think she probably understood Jesus better than anybody else on the planet at that stage, that he came to bring forgiveness for great sinners. Now, you know from the Bible, don't you, that sexual sin is important. Deadly. The Bible takes adultery, fornication, these sort of things very seriously. But the heart of sin is not that. The heart of sin is pride, where we value our opinion over his. We don't need to trust him. We don't need to be taught when his word disagrees with us. We will correct it. We'll be like Adam and Eve. We will decide what is good and evil. We will make that decision. We will make ourselves like God. 
So Simon may never have committed adultery, he may never have sold his body in prostitution, etc. But he was at least as wicked as she was. It just wasn't as obvious. She needed, he needed great forgiveness. He was just blind. To quote the great theologian Alice Cooper, when Jesus opened your eyes and you finally realise who you are, right, everything changes. Great love, Jesus says in verse 47, which is really the key verse, flows out of being an awareness of great forgiveness. And you won't take your need for forgiveness seriously until you see your sin seriously. So, great love comes out of a great conviction of your sin and his greatness. And sometimes an act of mercy that God does that we fight really hard against is when God's trying to show you who you really are. We will do, go through all sorts of backflips in all sorts of areas to not say, gosh, I did that, I said that, I didn't do that, I did that, I thought that. We'll do all, and all sorts of excuses. No, it's not that sinful. Don't try and put me on a guilt trip. And sometimes when a Christian brother or sister comes to you and actually draws to your attention a, a possible area of sin and evil, they're your, they're your, in fact, even if you think, which is what we always, almost always think, they're not doing it very well. You know, It's a great work of the Holy Spirit. Amazing grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. We will often fight against catching a glimpse of just how desperate you are, I am, for forgiveness. Therefore, we fight against ever seeing the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. He will teach us about that. But what he wants to do is what he's done for this woman, to release her from her guilt and then to relieve her of her shame. Jesus wants her to know that she's forgiven. Look at the next verse. Then Jesus said to her, verse 48... Your sins are forgiven. Now, why does he say that? It's obvious her sins are forgiven already. And it's the, the, the tense of the verb there is, it's, the, it's like I'm married. Something happened to me some years ago. Poor old Alison. Um, we got married. I married. But it continues into the present. So it's something that starts there, but it continues into the present and onward. That's, that's the the sort of way in which this uh, verb functions. Your sins are forgiven. They were forgiven and they stand as forgiven. Why does he say that? She knows that. That's why she's excited. Well, if you know, you know, if you're a Christian, you'll know you need to be reminded, don't you, that God's grace triumphs completely and constantly over your sin. Right? That, that we, we, we need that. We need to hear because as we're convicted for our sin, we take it seriously, we take the law of God seriously, we need to be, it's okay, Jesus says to her, although she's already forgiven, that's why she loves much. He wants to hear, you are forgiven. And that's one of the ministries that we do for each other. Happens in church almost every week, doesn't it? You, we, we have a moment, we confess our sin, and then on behalf of God, promises are read that says, if you've confessed your sin, you're forgiven. Great love needs to be reminded of how wonderful his grace is. We are released from guilt, but he doesn't want it to stay there. He wants her to know she's forgiven, and he wants you to know you're forgiven so you can rejoice and glorify him and celebrate and dance, whatever else is going wrong, to know that your, your sin has been dealt with by him. Now, here's the wonderful thing. She has been forgiven, but she hasn't got the faintest clue how much it's cost. The gift on its own says to her, wow, you are so beautiful. 
that you should forgive. It's like a kid getting a Christmas present and senses how much you love them because you've given them this lovely present. But if they only knew that you'd had to sell a kidney to be able to buy it, they would be even more impressed. And so this woman has no idea, as no one had any idea then, how much the forgiveness was going to cost him. Because in the end, when you owe someone, and that's one of the pictures the Bible has, when you're in debt to someone, if they forgive your debt, someone has to eat the debt. doesn't go away, does it? So if the bank says, OK, well, forget your mortgage. You can have it off. Um, it's, someone has to pay for it. Some, someone else has to eat that money that was given to you that you haven't been able to pay back. And that's what Jesus is doing, isn't it, with his death? Right? And she doesn't even know that. But she just knows, boy, I, I, I needed forgiveness and I didn't deserve forgiveness because you can't deserve forgiveness. Right? It's a gift. But then she doesn't even know how much Jesus is going to... Imagine, imagine how excited she's going to be at the other side. When My goodness, he didn't just forgive me completely, perfectly, instantly, but he paid. Abraham Lincoln has... Um, Many of you know as an American president. Um, two interesting stories about Abraham Lincoln that are somewhat related to this. He went down to Richmond. I think it was the capital of the South. At one stage, it was one of the big cities in the South at the point when the South was getting beaten up. And he went down as soon as it was safe for him to go as the president of the, of the Northern Blakes, or the whole country, because he wanted to see war. He wanted to keep remembering what a ghastly thing it was and how costly it was. And the only thing worse than losing a war is, well, the only thing worse than winning a war is losing the war. So he went down and there were some slaves who were, had already been released. And someone explained to one of the slaves that this was the guy who'd led the charge to get their burials. And one, and one of the, the African-Americans came to him and fell at his feet and, and grabbed him by the ankles and wept and thanked him. And what does Abraham Lincoln do? Get up. Don't do that. And you only do that to God. Imagine if someone came and said, oh, Ian, you didn't preach for seven hours. I'm so grateful. And they, and they fell at my feet. Or, and if I just went, you'd know what I was sicker than you thought. Right? But when people fall at Jesus' feet, he doesn't say, come on, stop that. He knows it's perfectly appropriate for them to do that. You pick other religious leaders who history and you did it, you'd probably be dead if you got down and worshipped them. But Jesus thinks, yeah, that's fair. She, she got it. Mr. Cool Karma collected Mr. Theological Simon. He, he doesn't see anything. He's blind. But the other true story about Abraham Lincoln, or at least I understand it's a true story, was earlier on in his life, he went down to see a slave auction. Boat had arrived at one of the port cities, and people were being sold for various amounts of money. And then a beautiful young woman stood up. They stripped her nearly naked. And then some of the guys who were going to you know, buy slaves, one particular man was saying all sorts of creepy things about what he was going to do when she was his. And Lincoln found himself bidding against that man. The price went very, very high. He was, going to, he was not going to let that young woman fall into this creep's hand. So he paid. He bought a slave. Put some, his coat round her and then explained to her that she was now free. That you know, he owned her and he could release her and he did release her. You know, and she, she just took her a while to work out, what, 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 what? And she said, what are you, and she said, what, I can go anywhere I want. He said, yes, yes you can, you're free. I can do pretty much anything I want. Yes, you're free. 
I can be with people that I want to be with. Yes, you're free. She said, well, I'll be with you. I'll stay with you. Right? She, she saw this is the sort of person who is so lovely that you want to be with them. Now, imagine if Abraham Lincoln had not just sort of did himself a tiny bit of financial damage, but had actually sold his only home back up north in order to have the money to set her free, that it wasn't just an act of kindness, which the forgiveness this woman gets, that's all she knows is an act of extraordinary generosity, as it is for you when you discover that God had completely forgiven you and set you free. But it cost him his house for her. That would just be a whole new level of amazement. Now that's what comes, isn't it, when you get to the end of Jesus' story. He doesn't just give beautiful, free, total, perfect forgiveness. Right? Removes our sins from us completely as if they'd never been done. But he himself pays a terrible, beautiful, but painful price. Hmm. Even more reason, I think, to weep to tears of gratitude to wipe his feet and to take our valuable perfume and pour it on him. Not a little bit of it, but all of it. The only response you can give to that sort of love and that sort of mercy is, you've won me. I'm yours. So, some of you will know, we won't look at that. That's the old thing of Isaac Newton at his death. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace, we looked at it last week, although my memory is fading, and it was, as he was dying, he was losing it. I remember these two things clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. You've got to remember the second, right? But you'll appreciate him when you get yourself. This great, famous quote from Keller. You're more sinful than you dare to imagine. You are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. That, this is the difficult dance it's an exotic thing. It comes from heaven that the Bible will give you the harshest view of yourself that you'll find anywhere. It's realism. You're sicker than you think. But it doesn't matter because the one who matters loves you and values you to hold those, those things together. And, you know, we've got this thing we talk about sometimes at church. We talk about soap. We talk about being gripped by the love of Christ. We want to be that sort of church. seems appropriate to remember that. Uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us and we want, because of our love for him, we want to help strangers to his love get to know his love and trust his love. And we want those who trust him to love him, which is where the woman got to. And she loved him. She was crazy in love with him. No, she was sanely in love with him. I'm crazily in love with him. Far too cool, calm and collected. And then because of that, we go on to become warriors for him to do what we can to spread the news of him to others. That's obviously what we want to happen. So, um, just... Church weekends away are fantastic. We've got one coming up uh, later this year. But a couple of years ago, I was at a church and, and the guy who was speaking got us to break into pairs and share what is it about Jesus that really excites you, that you'd like to let others know that he does for you. Not, not what was it that brought you to him at the beginning, but now. And this guy was a very eminent lawyer in his field, apparently very, very well paid. Other lawyers told me that. He didn't. But I was partnered with him. And I said, well, what is it, Mark? And he said, he said, when I read the Psalms and when I read the stories of Jesus, my heart sings with joy. And I felt like I said, no, it doesn't. You're a lawyer. Right? 
But it, was, it just wasn't the way Mark normally spoke. You know, he was on parish council, he's a great blessing. But it was, it, was so, it was so healthy that his heart sings with joy. Right? And that's just ordinary, someone whose eyes have been opened. And I think for us to keep praying the prayer, three things I pray, see you more clearly, so I'll love you more dearly, follow you more nearly. Not to allow ourselves to drift to the 50 denarius side of Simon, but to keep praying that God will keep moving us to realise that we are five million denarius people. We've got nothing to fear because Jesus is, as it says in the verse just before this, verse 34, Jesus reports, I am called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he is. But if you won't wear the label of who you are, I'm a sinful woman, I'm a sinful man, you'll sort of exclude yourself from the circle of his friendship. And the beauty is he is, he is the friend of sinners. So I'm in with a chance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love to release your people from our real guilt before your Father and to give us the relief of knowing this in our hearts for the work of the Holy Spirit that we could rejoice, that you have given us such wonderful, perfect forgiveness and God, we need it. <laughs> we have no secrets from you, Father. You don't change your rules because we ignore them. But we thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. We pray that you would give to us all here, Father, pardon and peace, that by your grace we would enjoy being cleansed from our sins and serve you with a quiet and joyful mind and heart. Thank you, Lord, that you've done all that needs to be done, that we can be perfectly forgiven. Amen.